We're doing things a little differently today. Um, one of the requests that I'd heard from a few people was, you know, at some point, would you and Brooke share more of the adoption journey, the adoption story um, with us? And as I was studying Matthew chapter 17, it really hit me that this was the Sunday for us to do that. Um, and so I'm going to read from Matthew 17, verses 9 through 21. And as I read, I'm just going to highlight a few things along the way. But then um, momentarily, Brooke will come and primarily will focus on verse 20 of, of this text. So this is God's word to us. And again, I'm going to do it a little differently. I'm just going to um, pause along the way and make a few statements or observations um, at this moment. So Matthew 17, beginning at verse 9. Now as they came down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So why would Jesus give them that instruction? Why would he say that? It's because he doesn't want anyone to confuse what has just happened as if he had come to bring about military liberation. He still has to go to the cross. And the disciples had been confused about that. People had been confused about that. They were expecting a different type of Messiah. And so they have just seen his glory. And before his glory would be fully manifest, he would go to the cross. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're wondering, well, has Elijah come? Because before Messiah, there's supposed to be Elijah. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. A few different points to be made here is that both Jesus and John would be mistreated because they would be misunderstood. But there's some question that people raise because in John 1.21, they ask John specifically, are you Elijah? And John says he is not. So how are you to reconcile that piece? If, you, if you're reading the scripture here, there's a couple of different possibilities. One is that John was a remarkably humble man, and he did not even know the fullness of his purpose. But Jesus understood who John was even better than John. And, and you will remember John at a, at a later point when he's about to um, be martyred, sins and says, are you the one or should we expect another? You know, John was um, human like all of us. 
and he was a very humble person. That's one possibility. Another very strong possibility is that Elijah, if you remember, never actually died, and he was taken straight up into heaven. And what John is saying is, is that he is not some reincarnated form of Elijah when he says that he is not the Elijah that they would have remembered being taken up like that. But what we know for certain is that God predicted John's work as that like Elijah in Luke 1.17. What we know for certain is that John dressed like Elijah in Matthew 3.4. What we know for certain is that like Elijah, John preached in the wilderness. Both preached a message of repentance. Both withstood kings and strong enemies against them. Both were preparing the way for repentance and obedience. And John was pointing to the Messiah. And so he was the fulfillment of what we see in Malachi 3 and 4 of the appearance of Elijah before the Messiah. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. I think really just to pause here again for a moment, Jesus had just been up on the mountain where his glory was revealed, but now he comes down into the valley where the misery of humanity is revealed. And I would just say to each of us that we can't just stay on our mountains. We've got to actually come down into the valleys of people's lives and minister to people and make a difference. And so what we see is, is Jesus answered and said, um, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Moving a mountain in Jewish literature was proverbial for virtually that which seemed impossible. And faith simply means that if God calls a person to do something, God shall accomplish that through that person by his power and that individual's obedience. So what it entails here is even the most absurd things in the eyes of the world, from the world's point of view, can be accomplished if God calls us to it and we believe it. And so what hopefully this morning will show 
is even when our faith is as small as a mustard seed, God can move some pretty big mountains. Pray with me. Lord God, we are I'm grateful for the fact that we have glimpsed your glory. We, we are on this side of the cross. There should, no be, should be no confusion like there was before. We know what you have done. We know who you are. And so you call us into um, the valleys to minister to others, to be obedient to your call, and to know that when we are and when we believe, you can do great things. And so today, we come into your presence believing in your greatness, in your majesty, in your power. And we are asking, Holy Spirit, that where our faith is small, you would remind us that it's not the size of our faith, but it's the size of our God. And you are mighty and big and great and awesome. And we worship you. Where those who are present here especially need your touch, Holy Spirit, may they feel your presence. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to let her start. And she's going to speak to um, her sense of call and being married to me. So. so I kind of think that um, the call to care for orphans was just something that God gave me, um, you know, even at a young age. We saw that with Whitman, um, which is kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but he told his pre-K teacher when he was four that we were going to adopt a little girl. And obviously, we didn't bring Valen home until he was 11. So um, she told Prophet. me she told me that um, that he said that. And so anyway, I just think there are some some children even that have the calling early on. But in 2006, um, I would have been 27. I was single, um, had a very demanding job in PR for a large foundation in Oklahoma City. And I remember coming home late from work one night, and I walked past my guest bedroom and saw the empty day bed. And it was like, God just said to me, one day you're gonna fill a bed with a child that needs it. And um, so I kind of wrestled with that for a few days, and I called the local DHS office and said, I'm single, I work like 60 hours a week, um, so I don't have a lot of free time, but I just wanted to talk to you about foster care. So she said, well, there are some options like respite care and things like that. Let me send you an enrollment packet or a registration packet. Um, so she sent me all the paperwork and I started to fill it out and I just didn't have a piece that the timing was right. Um, I uh, was kind of getting restless with my job and wanting to move closer to home, uh, maybe moved to St. Louis, which I did the following year, and um, took a job in St. Louis and met him seven months later, and um, we were married in 2008, so 
Anyway, um, we had kind of talked about adoption a little bit, like what if we can't have children? We both are um, on the same page that we would pursue adoption. Um, but I told him that I really wanted to adopt anyway. And he was like, that's nice. I really don't even want to have kids. And <laughs> was it quite that strong? And I wanted to have four. So anyway, we have three. So you know who went out on that. But um, anyway, so we had talked about it throughout our marriage. Um, I had a really difficult time having Whitman. And so we talked about it then. Maybe um, I wouldn't get pregnant again. We would adopt for our second child. And um, the doctors said, the complication I had with Whitman, Whitman was a fluke. It wouldn't happen again. Obviously, it did, and you all know that story. Um, we spent several months in the hospital trying not to have him early. Um, then in 2015, you know, it still obviously was on my heart, on my mind, and he wasn't on the same page. Um, but in 2015, there was a documentary that came out. It only played two nights at Chesterfield Mall. Um, I don't think it was at any other St. Louis theaters, but it's called The Dropbox, and it's the story of Pastor Lee in Seoul, South Korea, um, and how he inserted a, like a bank dropbox on the side of his church apartment building. Um, it has a heater and a, a, an alarm that goes off when someone drops a baby. And so it's a safe place for someone to abandon their baby um, and he and the volunteers from the church take care of these children. And so Timothy said, I know you're taking me to this movie because you want me to change my mind about adoption. And I said, no, I think it's just a good movie for us to go to. So we're sitting in the theater, and it, it's very, I mean, I encourage everyone to see it, every um, Christian to see this powerful testimony of this pastor. But... Um, he was very overcome with emotion, and that, would have, that was March of 2015. Well, little did we know, um, around the world, there was a little girl that would be born in August of 2015. And I just wonder um, what was going on at that time when we both were kind of wrestling with it. Um, so fast forward to 2017, I was following a bunch of adoption agencies, their blogs. Um, I had several friends that had adopted that, you know, were fostering that type of thing. It was um, something that was always on my mind and I was reading about constantly. And um, there was an email that popped up on my screen and it said, what is your church going to do about Orphan Sunday? And Orphan Sunday, as you know, is always um, in November. And so I texted my husband, who was one of the pastors at our church, and I said, hey, what are we going to do about Orphan Sunday? And um, I told him that I wanted to co coordinate that at our church. And so he talked to the other pastors, and they agreed that we could do that. And my prayer and all of the coordination of it, it was a pretty big deal, um, was that one family would come forward from our church to adopt or foster. And I was secretly hoping it would be mine. Um, but anyway, it wasn't. But our good friends, Anna and Brody, who didn't even have adoption on their radar, um, just knew that Sunday morning that that's what they were supposed to do. And they were here 
um, a couple weeks ago, you guys got to meet them. Um, they adopted their little girl, Lucy, from Columbia. Um, but anyway, I knew that following year that he was really wrestling with it. And you may stop there. Okay. I was, so basically, let me, let me tell you why I resisted. I resisted because I'm old. Um, I, I, I resisted because financially it's a remarkably um, difficult undertaking. Uh, it, it, it's astounding how expensive it is to adopt internationally. And so I had even said, well, I might adopt internationally if I knew that all the money was already provided for us to do it, you know, because that's the way my mind works. If I already know I have everything in place, then okay. If I can control it, good, okay? And so, but the problem is, is that you can't control things. And that's the other part. I wanted to be in control and fear gripped my heart. And fear gripped my heart because you cannot know um, what exactly the situation is that you're, that you're facing before you even go. You really have to go in faith. And so here I am um, having trouble with it because I lacked faith. And I'm doing, a, I'm doing a devotional study through Genesis about this time. And I come to the life of Abram. And I wrote these words down. I want to read these words that I wrote down. Um, I, I had written, let faith and the promises of God dictate your feelings instead of letting your feelings dictate your faith. And I'm, I wrote that, and then I looked at it and said, then why, why not say yes to adoption? And so I decided I'm going to say yes to adoption. And she's been, you know, really for the last five years, kind of not nagging, that's a strong word, but we'll say nagging, um, you know, me about adoption. And so I decide at that moment, I'm going to say yes. And I called a friend of mine who's a pastor who had adopted a little girl from Ethiopia. And he told me that he did all God's children. So I was going to surprise my wife. And I called all God's children, and they sent me an application. And I filled out the application, you know, to kind of send it. Nothing involved. Just I was going to fill out the application, send it to all God's children for us to adopt a little girl from China. That was kind of the thought for a long time, a little girl from China. And so here we were. were going to, I was going to do this. I came home. I surprised her. I'm like, look, I um, applied to adopt a child. And she was angry. And I'm like, I thought this was going to be a husband win. And instead, it was not. And here she was. She was like, look, I've researched this for five years, and you just decide on one day that you're just going to apply for this particular agency and do all this. And so um, I was not in good graces, as I thought I would be. But so she said, okay, well, you know, let's, you know, all God's children doesn't have a social worker that serves Mississippi. So we at least have to have a conversation with another agency to get that service. If that's in fact who we go with is all God's children. And so she sets up a phone call with Lifeline in Birmingham. And so we're sitting in my office and the call comes in. And we're on speakerphone, and the first thing that the person says to me, she says, I just have to ask you, are you Dr. Gibson from Westminster Christian Academy? 
And I said, yeah, I taught at Westminster for seven years. She's, and her name was Marcy Larson. But I, her maiden name was Marcy Glidewell. I taught her when she was a junior in high school. So, so 10 years before this. So here the person who is calling us to talk to us about adoption processes is someone who I have known from the time in which I was teaching in high school. And so we're just like looking at each other like, really? God's definitely in this. And then she starts talking about the um, countries that they service because all God's children didn't service India. And she mentioned India. And then we're sitting there going, we had not thought about India, but we have two nieces who are from India. Wouldn't it be great if the child we adopted had cousins from the same place where she was from? And so it was clear we were supposed to do Lifeline. We were supposed to adopt from India. And so we sign up for this. Let me just say again, looking at the text that I read earlier, that if we're not willing in faith to help others, they suffer. And so here we had a, 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 a real call that we're supposed to adopt from India. And once we get approved for ACARA, that's once we, 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 obviously we transitioned, we had to pay other fees for a new home study and all the different stuff because we moved from Mississippi to Illinois. And again, I mean, it's just crazy, all the expense that goes into international adoption. And so here we are, we, we make the transition and we get approved by ACARA. And so um, we receive a file of a little girl who's um, a little under two and a half years old. And we had to say no to that file. I mean, it was hard. But we just really knew that we needed to say no to it. And then we got another file, and it was a little girl, and she was, um, under the, she was under 18 months. And we thought, this is going to be the little girl. And it didn't take long. It really became clear that after only about a week of having the file that we couldn't say yes to this file either. And so this is heart-wrenching. We've said no to two little girls' files. And it's about a week later after we've said no to that second file that we get this appeal from Lifeline for this particular child. And I look at the appeal. She's almost five. And once you get to be five or older, it's hard for you to get adopted because you age out, essentially, of, of people's minds. And so they're sending this appeal for this child. And, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, we need to look at this file. And so I'm going to let her talk. So I was still grieving the last uh, file, and um, with both of the files that we had had before, I contacted numerous doctors and specialists, and I felt like I was fighting for this child more than anyone ever had, um, but I was just burned out by the process, too. Um, we started in October of 2018, and at this point, it was May, the end of May of 2020, and um, India was shut down because of the pandemic and not shut down like Americans, you know, sitting in their recliner watching Netflix. It wasn't like that. Like they were legit shut down. Um, people couldn't work. Um, everything was closed. Courts were closed. Offices were closed, government offices. Um, it was very depressing just thinking, are we ever gonna get this process um, going again? And so I just did not have the emotional energy to even look at this file. Um, and he said, I really think we should. And so um, 
obviously, you know who it was, but um, she was adorable. Um, but I just, all the research I had done about attachment and how crucial those first two years are, I was just really scared that um, she wouldn't attach to me and to our family. And um, a friend, I've met several friends throughout this process um, that live really all over the world, um, but have all adopted from India. And one girl who's just become a dear, dear friend had received a file of a little boy two months prior, and they were only qualified um, according to their homestay for a girl. And she called me that week that we were trying to make our decision. And she said, I have to ask you a question. If she were two and everything else was the same, would you have already said yes? And I knew what she was saying because that's how she made her decision, knew that she was supposed to make the right decision was because if the little boy had been a girl, she would have said yes right away. Um, but anyway, so. And I just want to say real quick that um, in the adoption process, I had peace, you know, in, in, a, in a sense of not being afraid for a very short window. I was scared pretty much the entire time, still scared, to be honest, but, but I was really, really scared the entire time. But there was about a week, maybe actually about a little bit longer, I was not scared. I saw this file and I told Brooke, this is our little girl. Um, this is who we're supposed to adopt. And, and so as soon as Brooke would eventually say yes, obviously, as you know, then I started getting scared all over again. But anyway, I just want to. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, Sunday, June 7th, last year, um, we, I, Timothy said, we need to make a decision, you know, on Monday. We just, um, we had been praying, you know, and I was just like, God, please give me peace. Just show me what we should do. You know, I'm just, I'm so scared. I don't, I don't know if this is the right decision. And um, you probably remember all of the unrest in our nation last summer. And there was a book that I had read a couple years prior by Bob Goff. He's a Christian author, and it's called Everybody Always. It's very good. I highly recommend it. Um, and I, that morning, I was like, oh, I need to pull that off my bookshelf because um, I want to start reading it again. And I just kind of, before I got in the shower, just kind of flipped through it, and I landed on this page. And he says, people who are becoming love experience the same uncertainties we all do. They just stop letting fear call the shots. And it was just like, okay, Brooke, you know what you're supposed to do. Um, and so an hour later, I was at church with the boys, and a friend walked up to me right before the service started. We were out, outside at that time. And she handed me an envelope and said, this is for you guys. I stuffed it in my purse. The service started. Um, the boys and I were driving home afterwards, and we were at a red light, and I remembered the envelope, and I pulled it out, and there was $500 cash in it. Um, I started crying <laughs> because it was just like God was saying, I'm in this, I'm providing, you need to say yes. Um, the light turned green and the song that came on, Joy FM, um, is one that you probably all know, is Who You Say I Am by Hillsong. And um, I just felt like God was saying, are you going to trust me to keep carrying you through this process? 
The song lyrics say, in my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. In that moment, he gave me peace that he had a place for this little Bengali princess, and it was with us. Thank you, John and Lisa. I just want to say one other piece about that, too, is that when she was, she's like a, she's like a journalist, um, an, investi an investigative journalist, when she gets her mind on something. And she was doing research, trying to figure out, learning more and more about this particular child's file that we're reviewing. And in the process of that, she found a lady who had adopted a little girl from the same place where our daughter um, was in the same orphanage. And when she went over to get her daughter, and this was you know, well before, this is when you know, um, Valen was two and a half or so, and she's over there, and when she got there with her husband, they, they had shut the, the judges had went on strike. So she couldn't take her child, but she was not leaving without her child. And so she ended up staying, how long was it? Three months. Three months. She stayed in India for three months. Um, now, if you see the place they live, you realize that three months is no issue for them. They, they yes, I mean, they, they have a castle that they live in. But anyway, she... Um, was there three months and she would go from 11 to 5 every day to the orphanage and when she finally and so we have pictures of her With our daughter because our daughter was best friends essentially with the little girl She was adopting and she would have both of them in her arms and when she was when she was leaving with her daughter Valen said to her. I want a mommy, too now, I've got to tell you, I looked at Brooke when Brooke was finding this out, and I said, she's already attached to you. And I'm going to go and tell you, from the very moment we got her from the orphanage back to the place where we were staying, and Brooke gave her a bath, from that moment, she's been attached to Brooke. Um, always. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sight. Really, what you can see a little bit in this, though, I hope maybe you can, is that my faith was not that strong. Her faith in a certain moment in the adoption process was not really that strong. But the point of what Jesus is saying in this text, it doesn't matter how strong our faith is. It matters that our faith is present because if we have faith as a mustard seed, just a little, just an ounce, because our faith is not always that strong. But God is always that strong, and He can move mountains. She was talking about Anna and Brody. Their little girl just had surgery here at Children's. Because she's got um, it was CP, right? And for her to be able to walk, they had to perform the surgery for her to have a chance to walk. And so I, I'm in the midst of reading through Matthew 17, and I text them this. This is what I text them. Prayer is faith that breathes. And I want to stop because Mark says that they lacked prayer. Matthew says that they lacked faith. Okay? It's not a contradiction because prayer 
is faith that breathes. They are the same. It is a reminder that we must always look outside ourselves and our human competency for God's deliverance, strength, and sustaining power. How do we move mountains? We have a faith that breathes, and so we talk to God with trusting hearts. And then I said, I am praying for your precious daughter and for you both and for Lucy's amazing sisters and for the doctors and nurses. May a mountain move and may Lucy walk. Anna immediately replied, see, there is a little bit of Pentecostal in you after all. And so I texted back, probably I said, I am married to Brooke after all. But faith that breathes always focuses on and trusts the outcome to God, even when our faith is small, and God honors that focus. Here's the problem. The Pentecostal puts deliverance in human hands by the expression, if only they had enough faith. And that's not right. If only our faith is in the right person. And so moving mountains does not come by the measure of our faith, but through the mere presence of it. And if Jesus' words show us that in spite of times when our faith is stretched and small, we count not on the power of our faith, but the power of our God. Psalm 62, 11 reads, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, power belongs to you, O God. And so I wanna read this comment by Frederick Dale Bruner on Matthew 17, verse 20. Realism usually counsels us not to make claims as sweeping as moving mountains, even for Jesus. But there can be no question that the goal of this story is to inspire faith within us that if we believe in God with even a small quantity of faith, a faith that at least says its prayers, we can level every mountain in our lives. Is this unrealistic? Has Jesus been risen? That draws my heart to a Christian song that I really have just registered with lately, it's just been on my, every time I hear it, it just ministers to my spirit. It's called rattle. Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. But since when has impossible ever stopped you? Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? This is the sound of dry bones rattling. This is the praise, make a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out, I'm gonna live. I'm gonna live again. The church finds her authoritative power in the majesty and the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, but she finds her help in our prayers of faith in the valley. And I will tell you, and I'm going to turn this over to Brooke again, I will tell you that in spite of my sparse faith at times, she always said, God's going to move a mountain. So the 
process was very difficult. Um, just India is and their processes are very inefficient. <laughs> you can't count on a timeline. You can't count on a judge to be informed about what adoption is or how the process should go. Um, like we said, during the pandemic, um, everything was shut down. Um, but one of the difficulties during the process um, came towards the end, and most of you know that our visas got lost in the mail. And it was Christmas time, and um, it, I thought Timothy was going to have a coronary every time he was on the phone with USPS. Um, but basically, it got shipped to a distribution center north of Chicago, and they didn't know where it was. It could be lost, and we would never get them, which to get emergency visas to fly to India when it's shut down is not <laughs> an easy process. Um, it would have been months to get new ones. Um, they said that it could be three weeks before they could find it. And so um, my boss could tell I was visibly upset that morning. And he said, I think you need to call our Illinois senators. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. You know, and he had a connection with one of them through his sister. So I had a connection with one of them. I called. And, um, but the other... I called some representatives too, another senator. Um, I just cold called and told them our story. And two of them in particular just went to bat for us. And one of the staffers said, I will not let down my guard until they have those visas to you. Like you were flying over there to get your daughter. And I don't know if he has a relationship with Christ, but I was able to share with him our heart for adoption and how we knew God had called us to this. Um, and so um, the morning that we found out they could be lost and it was just really discouraging, um, God led me to Matthew 9 and I just knew that I needed to sit there a minute. Um, specifically, Matthew 9, 22, Jesus turned and saw her, have courage, daughter, he said, your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. And if you aren't familiar, um, the chapter includes really poignant ex examples of people who believed fiercely in Jesus's power. And this verse, of course, talks about the woman who bled continually for 12 years. And I shared with my mom's group that week, um, after just spending time in Matthew 9, you know, I think so often we would be like, if I can just spend a day with Jesus, or if I could just hug Jesus or, you know, hold his hand. And this woman was like, if I could just touch his hem, if I could just, that would just be enough power to heal me. I mean, she believed so deeply in her soul that he was that powerful. And it just really made me pray different after reading that chapter and really meditating on it. Like, you know, do I really believe that God can find an overnight envelope this big that should have been sent overnight but has been sitting there for 11 days? Can he find it in all the Christmas mail that's lost? <laughs> Probably most of you lost a package or a Christmas card or two. You know how that was. You know, is he powerful enough to do even this small thing, find this small thing? Um, and another, another um, 
lyric that I just want to share is that uh, the song Peace Be Still um, was something that I really reflected on. And those words are, peace be still, you are here, so it is well. Even when my eyes can't see, I will trust the voice that speaks. Peace over me. Let faith rise up, O heart believe. Let faith rise up in me. One of the senator's uh, staffers followed through on what he said he was going to do. And we did get those visas um, right away. Um, I would just say a couple of different things, too, with regards to those visas and the fact that we were even getting visas at that time. I think it was June 17th. Was that when we said yes? June 7th. June 7th. June 7th. We said yes to the file. Um, they said that in a normal adoption process, normal adoption process, you're looking at 12 to 18 months to travel. No, best uh, case was best, six but, 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 best case scenario was six months. In a, in a normal. Normal. Okay, in a normal. Best case scenario is six months in a normal situation, but it could be up to 18 months. But in the case of COVID, you're looking possibly at 18 to 24 months. Okay, so June 7th, and we traveled January 10th. Um, that's we're sitting at the U.S. Embassy in India. And she's looking at our stuff and she says, she looks right at me and she says, I'm not seeing any adoption go like this. That has gone this fast in the midst of this situation. You know, she had been saying, we're gonna travel by March. And I was, you know, I'm realistic Rick. Um, and I'm like, nothing, no, no fist to Rick's in the, in the room. I'm just, you know, just the expression. Um, and I'm negative Ned, whatever. And so the, I'm saying, baby, you need to prepare yourself. It's probably going to be, you know, June, July of next year. And she's like, we're going to travel by March. And we travel in January. I mean, they had just opened up like in September. They were so far behind on all their, you know, court work and all that, you know, type of stuff. And we travel in January. And then once we get back, you know, that, and we're getting all the evaluations and she's sitting there with Dr. Tyson who does her, her eye procedures and he's like, he couldn't believe that her retina hadn't detached from her eye because of the significance, you know, and he's like, you're so fortunate that you got her when you did and that you brought her to me. Um, why? Because God moves mountains. And then we're, we're sitting over there and, you know, we, we, we get her, this is, one, this is my favorite story, and some of you probably have heard me share it, but it's my favorite story, and this is not really about moving a mountain, but it kind of is because it's this aspect of attachment that Brooke was so concerned about. And we're in the airport about to fly back to the United States, and in Delhi, they don't speak Bengali. Um, they speak Hindi. And so there's, you know, we were having trouble getting people to understand her in Delhi. And so we can't understand her. She's, she's actually really perceptive. She's always seemed to be able to understand us. But we were having trouble understanding her, and people there couldn't understand her because they didn't speak her language. And we're in the airport, and we're sitting there, getting there early because I, I was so concerned. I want to make sure, to, no complications. I mean, here are these two white people, you know, the only two white people that we've seen in India the entire time we're there. I mean, she was a celebrity. People were taking pictures of her everywhere she went. You know, and so here we are in the airport. We got there early, and we're in a... In a place where we're shopping for something, and this lady says, I'm Brooke saying, we're, we're adopting and we're flying home. And she goes, to, she's, and the lady goes, does she speak Hindi? And Brooke says, no, Bengali. And so the lady said something to her, and Valen responded. 
And Brooke said, do you speak Bengali? And the lady said, I do. And she said, what did you say? And she said, I asked her where she was going. And she told me, I'm going home. That is God moving mountains. Um, and so our story, um, I think, is really that even when our faith was small, and it was often small, um, God moved. And I, I want to share another part of that song, Rattle, that I love so much. My God is able to save and deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. Just ask the man who was thrown on the bones of Elisha if there's anything that he can't do. Just ask the stone that was rolled at the tomb in the garden what happens when God says move. I think the mountain, I, I don't think, I just say it, the mountain that God wants to move most is that part of our hearts that want to say no to him, that want to resist him. And I would just ask this morning, I mean, I'm going to ask the musicians to come here, here now, but I would just ask you this morning, is there something in your heart that you need God to move? And if you have just the faith the size of a mustard seed, he will move whatever mountain hinders your heart from receiving his goodness and his grace. He came down from the mountain into the valley of our misery to give us hope and newness of life. And once we've received that, I just have to say, won't we have the faith to make the difference in the life of at least one. And that's something that's always stuck out to me and is that statement, I can't make a difference in the life of all, but I can make a difference in the life of one. If he's made a difference in our lives, how can we not care about the father and his boy who needed help. How can we not care about a valid? I get emotional because I wanted to say no so bad. Won't you say yes? 
it will change your life in so many beautiful ways. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. If you need to respond, I'll be here and the altar is open. If you just want to pray, prayer is faith that breathes. Let's breathe faith. You are